Hey, hang up, listeners. What you're about to hear is just a preview of this week's episode. As I discussed at greater length last week, the coronavirus pandemic has put a major hurt on Slate financially. And because of that, we're temporarily changing how we do this show. Every other week, the full Hang Up and Listen will be for Slate Plus members only, with just the first segment available to non-members. If you want to hear every word of every episode we do, then you need to subscribe to Slate Plus. It's a great deal. It's only $35 for the first year. And your membership will help us make it through this turmoil so we can continue doing Hang Up and Listen for a very long time. If you want to subscribe, you can do so at slate.com slash hangupplus. That's slate.com slash hangupplus. Thank you so much, and please stay safe out there. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hide your children. Hi, I'm Josh Levine, Slate's national editor and the author of The Queen. This is Hang Up and Listen for the week of April 27th, 2020. On this week's show, David Roth will join us to talk about the socially distanced NFL draft, a time for us to come together as a nation to appreciate the sectional furniture and the pets of pro football coaches and general managers. Lindsey Gibbs of Power Plays will also be here to talk about when and if women's sports will come back from the pandemic. And Mike Schur of Parks and Rec and The Good Place and other fine television products will be here to assess this year's name of the year bracket, where LSU wide receiver commitment, the coldest Crawford, is still alive. Our friend and colleague Joel Anderson is off this week, but I am coming to you from my desk at home in Washington, D.C., coming to you from his desk at his home in Washington, D.C., different home. It's the author of Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic, Stefan Fatsis. Hey, Stefan. Hey, Josh. You know who else is still alive in the name of the year? Math Daniel Squirrel is still alive. We ought to save that good stuff for the segment. Actually, one quick question, because I don't want to save all of the good stuff. How does this year's bracket stack up? I've talked about in the past my pet peeve around, remember March Madness when that existed? Mm-hmm. How every year the pundits say, it's the weakest bubble ever. There's some terrible teams in here. I feel like in name of the year, every year it just keeps getting stronger. It's like a really strong bubble. Is that correct? I think it's a consistently strong bubble. I mean, I'm loath to say that it's the best ever because I'm not a best ever kind of guy. But <laughs> yeah, this is a very strong, strong It's the median overall. name of the year contest. The most yeah. average and typical name of the year. Yeah, the Dragon Wagon Regional was a little weak, but we can talk about that later. We will. A quick note before we get underway. Our Quarantine Magazine Club, it is still happening. We're just going to push it a little bit. So next week, we'll be discussing the May 4th, 1998 Sports Illustrated cover story on athletes and out-of-wedlock children. Uh, the cover line was, Where's Daddy?, We'll talk about the story, the controversy it kicked up. It'll be an interesting conversation. You can find a link to the article in our show notes at slate.com slash hangup, and you can uh, listen to our Magazine Club discussion on next week's show. And now, on with this week's show. NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell opened this year's draft by thanking the troops and asking us, the viewing public, to dream of better days. But what better day could we have had during the coronavirus pandemic than one in which we got to see Bill Belichick's dog sitting in the Patriots coach's chair. 
Other sights on draft night included Washington coach Ron Rivera sitting in front of a backdrop of an American flag and what appeared to be an oil painting of his team's racist logo. Cowboys owner Jerry Jones lounging on an enormous white sectional on his $250 million super yacht. And Titans coach Mike Vrabel flanked by a pair of teens, one dressed as Frozone from The Incredibles and the other sporting a mullet and wearing Vrabel's old Patriots Pro Bowl jersey. Joining us now to discuss the semiotics of draft night and the way we live now, it's Hang Up and Listen, uh, Frozone and Mullet correspondent David Roth, who wrote about the draft for unnamedtemporarysportsblog.com, that being the site where former Deadspin writers got together last week to do Deadspin-like things. Hey, Dave. Hi, how are you? Doing okay. The NFL tried. They tried to be the NFL we know and love, the very self-serious NFL that is there for us in times of national tragedy. But I feel like they also sincerely tried to be a little looser than what the NFL usually is. These these guys were legitimately working from home, and we legitimately got to see their weird-ass homes. How kind of surprising was the way that the NFL approached this, and, and how much could we have predicted it just based on what we know about this league? I think uh, a little bit from from column A, a little bit from column B in terms of the surprise factor, like obviously pitching the entire thing at like the emotional tenor of just like endless Blue Angels flyovers. It's like (laughs) that's all they know, you know, like that's their their move. And yet there was something kind of goofy about it, which is not like a mode that the NFL fits very comfortably into. Like Roger Goodell is not like a cut up. Do you know what I mean? Like he's not a guy that's like comfortable doing bits and certainly like Bill Belichick or like Jerry Jones project like a certain like a type of humorlessness that you can really only have if you have a high ranking position in the National Football League. And yet, like it was kind of like goofier as seriously as they were taking it. It kind of felt like a actual fantasy draft. Like if you have like a regular league and like all your friends live in different cities or have kids or whatever, like it really wasn't that different than like me drafting my friend Mike's kid keeps running into the room. Harry Connick Jr. often sings the national anthem before my fantasy football draft. Yeah, that's so true. It really felt like home. He's been in our league for a long time. He, I remember him. He had Aaron Brooks as a keeper one year. Why would you do that? <laughs> Very doesn't take care of the ball. <laughs> yeah, the, the Harry Connick, certainly, apparently they've been doing the national anthem before the draft for like five years, uh, which I hadn't noticed because I, I, I'm not usually there for the very first moments of the NFL draft. But I will admit that like I had a, like a kind of like a hoot, I guess would be the sound that I made when I realized that uh, they were going to have somebody sing the national anthem before a fucking Zoom fantasy draft <laughs> with real players in it. And that was, uh, that kind of set a nice tone. I agree. I liked the bizarre nature of the endeavor. And at the same time, to go overboard as some regular sports columnists did and sort of praise the NFL for the way it handled this, that they found a path forward and they decided not to make it all about themselves for a change. And they found a charitable endeavor to make the enterprise fit the tenor of the times. I mean, that seemed like a lot of bullshit to me because 
You know, I, I was reading one of our local columnists here in Washington who wrote that while there were motivating business factors such as money, the player's desire for certainty, <laughs> material for television partners, and the maintenance of its relevance as the most engrossing league in American sports, the commissioner also sensed blah, 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 goodwill, blah, 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 civic benefit, blah, blah, blah. Let's be clear. The reason that the NFL went to these elaborate lengths and did it when it did it, as opposed to delaying this for a week, a month, you know, two months, was that they wanted to get their asses on television in front of a captive audience while the time was hottest. Man, such as money is such an incredibly blessed clause in that sentence. <laughs> Among other motivating factors. Such <laughs> as money. Yeah. Stefan, you were arguing that they should proceed with the draft as, as scheduled on this very program. I was, and then I watched it and thought, this is absurd. I mean, there was no reason for them not to proceed, but to cloak it in, we're proceeding not because we want to have business as usual, which is the only reason to proceed. It's perfectly fine to proceed and do business as usual, but to then say, like, it's really all about the troops and the healthcare workers the and NFL, Harry Connick is bullshit. That's the NFL touch, I think, though. That's what makes it so yeah. distinctively, like, funny and uncanny in the way that, like, corporate NFL stuff is, is that they never know when to stop with shit like that. And so there's, right. like, yeah, it's true. It actually, like, and they're not 100% you know, making this up like there is like it, it's a bit much to be like the Super Bowl is like this civic ritual of belonging or whatever, but it's not wrong. Exactly. It's just pompous. And I think that with the draft, like it really is significant that there was like some live sports thing to watch like people. Yeah. And I'm speaking from experience, like without it. Uh, things feel weird. Like, you should see, like, the former Deadspin people were all on the slack together. These guys are fucking keyed up for golf to start. Like, I've never <laughs> heard any of these people talk about golf in any way. And, like, Albert's like, I'm ready to, like, just jump through the screen, man. Well, like, put me on the Pebble Beach. And that is, like, I, I mean, I understand it. Uh, because, like, that's, you know, what sports does. And in this case, I think that, like, the draft itself was significant. The... And in terms of it being like live sports adjacent programming, it was significant. But the other stuff is like, that's kind of what is funny about it is that like the NFL can't do this without somehow bringing the troops into it that like John Schneider can't draft the whatever Seahawks third round pick unless he has uh, contractors remove walls from his home. So he has a better Wi-Fi signal. Like they just, it's never enough. But that's what made this also humanizing. I mean, the NFL and its teams will script all of this to within an inch of their lives. I mean, those draft rooms, war rooms, are set up like Hollywood sets. Um, but if you're forced to show Bill Belichick's husky sitting in front of his computer in his vacation house on Nantucket, there's sort of no way to get around that. And what we saw was the range of humanity inside the NFL when you take it outside of the facility. Yeah, I was kind of expecting all of the coaches to be living inside giant shoe phones. That's sort of what <laughs> I imagine. Or maybe a helmet phone. Who knows? Maybe there's some slight variation there. AFC gets the helmet phone. One of those uh, Sports Illustrated helmet phones you got for subscribing in 1987. Exactly. But yeah, it's not quite the stars are just like us if you look at, say, Cliff Kingsbury's house or Jerry Jones's yacht. But there is some 
Um, despite all evidence otherwise prior to this year, the NFL does have some human variation. Like not every coach is, you know, not every coach is like Mike Zimmer with uh, enormous mounted animal heads on the wall behind him. We also got to see how college coaches live. And Gus Malzahn has an enormous mural that says like, hurry up offense on it. I mean, these people are very, very strange and warped individuals, but they're strange and warped in slightly different ways. Um, Dave, what was your favorite coach or personnel guy uh, setting? I'm glad you mentioned the Malzahn one. It's that. It's the fact that he (laughs) built his entire house out of the weight room. That like just five wise, there's because it, it was like um in he's a that, head like, coach who wants to be a strength coach, and in the end, isn't that isn't that how we poignant. all should be living? Yeah, it is. Like, even at the very peak of achievement, uh, you still have to like whatever get a uh, play like champions today stenciled above the entrance <laughs> to your bathroom for some reason because that's like the mentality that you bring. It's it always was, good. You, you want to touch it on the way in, though, not the way out. Yeah, right. I was gonna say like just it's about yeah, it's about mindset. It's not about you know results. The uh, Kingsbury's house was incredible because it had that kind of like, um, like a- Arizona grandeur. Like there's like a fire pit that's just going outside for some reason that's like probably Bluetooth enabled in some way. Just a very peculiar dwelling. But Malzahn's was the best. I mean, I I could stand for a lot more of that. I know the NFL can't acknowledge that these guys are anything but geniuses. That's like it would be too knowing for the NFL to really sustain, but like the strangeness of the coaches, like how weird a shape they reliably bend themselves into either because they think that that's the right way to do it. Or because like, that's just the only way that Adam Gase could ever be like, regardless is like, I think it's become like more like a color detail in the way that I watch the league over, over the last few years. And I, I, you know, like, yeah. So of course I'd like to see Dave Gettleman's weird couch, or like Adam Gase's um, bizarrely Spartan bedroom or something like that. I mean, that's like part of, of why I am able to get myself interested in this in the first place is how strange the uh, the non-players are. Well, the undercurrent here, Stefan, um, is the NFL's performative sleep deprivation games where we always hear about coaches not ever going home during the season or waking up at three o'clock in the morning. Um, and so, uh, in, in some cases, I guess we can understand why the coaches wouldn't want to be home or, or the decor is, uh, based on a lifestyle in which, uh, you're maybe there to see your kids when they graduate from high school, but otherwise you're just not around. But then like, you know, Cliff Kingsbury, he seems to, you know, Dave, you mentioned, uh, the parasite, an Arizona version of parasite house. I was thinking it was more like. If the family and Parasite were San Fernando Valley porn impresarios, yeah. that's kind of the vibe. Yeah, definitely. The the fire pit was a very different sort of thing. That's more of a kind of like um, regional beer distributorship and less of the uh, sort of like glossy, ultra modern Parasite vibes. A lot of glass in that house, though. Yeah, I feel like yeah. John Gruden really doesn't have time for glass in his home. I looked at Kingsbury and I thought college sports paid for this. And that kind of <laughs> made me mad. So Kingsbury, but he also, he, he was dressed the role too. It looked like he didn't have socks on with his pointy shoes, his pointy leather shoes. Having Patrick Mahomes and getting an under 500 record in the Big 12 paid for this? Paid for that, yeah. Yep. It did. My favorite of the uh, war rooms, I think, belonged to Matt Nagy, the head coach of the Chicago Bears, who has wallpapered his uh, study 
which has a what seems to be a hexagonal black desk with six black leather chairs on wheels. He's papered the walls with what look to be play sheets. And I admire that. It looks really kind of cool. It's very colorful. So this is sincere. When you say it's your favorite, you mean it's your favorite. I mean, it's literally my favorite. If I were an NFL head coach and I were looking for a creative way to decorate my, uh, my, my, my workspace at home, it would be with play sheets, no doubt. I'm glad that it looks cool because what you're describing has kind of a real like Travis Bickle basement apartment <laughs> vibe. Like right. just the, the words are conjuring that image. Yeah, well, it kind of does, which again, I think I appreciate. If you're going to, you know, live by this code of 24-7, 365, we don't stop. I have an inflatable air mattress at the facility for training camp. At least when you go home, you want to continue the illusion of obsession. It's weird that the coaches don't get dinged for like having nice homes, though, the way that like a player, the, the way that they're constantly looking for the players that are drafted, where they're like, it doesn't seem like he likes the national anthem. Like he stands up for it, but you don't, I don't think he likes it. You don't see him crying during it. And then the idea of like having like that Cliff Kingsbury having such a nice house, if he were a player, they'd be like, well, I don't really know if he wants it. I don't really know if he's in it for the right reasons. Why isn't he uh, covering all those windows with play sheets so he can think <laughs> about football more often? Stefan, the, I guess, controversy of the draft would be the Patriots taking a kicker who appears to have uh, sympathies with right-wing militia groups, kind of as one does. He has tattoos that say, liberty or death, don't tread on me. Also the Dave Matthews band, interesting choice. <laughs> Look, you know, don't try it on me. Okay. Dave Matthews Band, we're going to have to talk. Um, and he also has a, a group that kind of led me down a Wikipedia rabbit hole, the, the yeah, three likewise. percenters. I didn't really know anything about this, uh, but now I do. Um, Stefan, can you explain what's going on with Justin Rohrwasser? He went to uh, Marshall, the Thundering Herd. He's a Thundering Herd. Is that what you are if you go to Marshall? I, I can't really explain other than this dude has some sort of aspiring white nationalist tattoos on his body and a Twitter feed that indicates that he's very supportive of people like Jordan Peterson and other sort of MAGA light uh, causes. What's weird to me is there are two things that are weird to me. One, he took a kicker in the fifth round. I mean, this is the Patriots <laughs> and Belichick. I mean, I love kickers, as everybody knows. They but took a punter if, there last year. I know, but if you're gonna, if, if you're gonna, I'm I'm on board with taking kickers and punters in the draft. I'm on board with taking Sebastian Janikowski in the first round. But if you're gonna pick one, there's really not that much difference among the very best kickers in college. I mean, maybe Justin Rohrwasser leapt to the top of the Patriots scouting board. But if you're going to pick one, you're going to pick the dude who's going to get blowback as soon as he walks, as soon as somebody looks at his arms. That's number one. And number two is, this is a league that, as I, as I said on Twitter, that as Des Bryant, if his mother was a prostitute, did the Patriots actually ask this guy, what does that shit on your arms mean? I mean, it seems a little bit or did they, did they, and they just don't care, and the Patriots would say, well, politics, we don't care about politics. But it's the NFL. 75% of that locker room is black guys. Um, a a proto-white nationalist in their ranks doesn't seem like a good look. you know. Or maybe this kid is not being insincere when he said that the tattoos were all random, and he got them when he was younger. So 
I don't want to step up and defend the guy with the 3% tattoos. I'm assuming that's not why you had me on uh, because of my ardent uh, fandom for like sort of white separatist groups or whatever. But I think that if you wanted to defend Justin Rohrwasser, which I apparently want to do, I think that a lot of that stuff is just like kind of bullshit lifestyle imagery that like the 3% thing is, is weirder because like as fashy cool as it looks to have like a Roman numeral surrounded by a garland of stars or whatever it is. uh, If that's something you're into, it's definitely, you know, it's also like, it means something. And I think that while I don't have a hard time imagining that a football player would get a tattoo without thinking too much about uh, what he was getting, like I think just what he said, right. There's plenty of, of evidence there. It's also, I think that like, for people that are kind of like reactionary in their politics, but in like a normal way that like a lot of that stuff that looks, you know, outright fash to other people is actually just kind of like mainstream shit now, like getting like a, like I'm trying to think of the Fox, uh, Fox and Friends, Pete Hegseth. I know is like a veteran and that guy's got similar tattoos. I think he also has like a, you know, give me liberty or give me death. He's got a crusader cross. All this stuff. And like, I don't know what his politics are beyond being on Fox News and on Fox and Friends, but I'm assuming that like, while he may be sincere in his reactionary beliefs, these are things that people just get because they think it's cool. And I think that it's weird to see certainly the idea that like Warwatcher would be able to skate on that shit that they'd look at it and be like, well, this is all kind of like a little, uh, you know, nine line in its vibe. But, uh, you know, whatever, he's he's good at kicking. Like, that's not a, a sort of benefit of the doubt that players at other positions or of other complexions tend to get at the risk of being, you know, yeah. obvious about it. I mean, I think the point is not that this guy should not be allowed to play football. Oh, it's that right. um, questions are generally raised about uh, players of different complexions who have different beliefs that are, are not raised of, of this guy. And, you know, I, I think there's no question that Justin Rohrwasser will be given a chance to play in the NFL when if he, um, you know, was a guy who kneeled during the national anthem or had a tattoo that was <laughs> like the American flag with a line through it. I don't know, are kids doing that <laughs> these days? Then, then maybe he wouldn't get uh, selected. But the thing that's that's interesting to me is that kickers are generally seen as so disposable. And like, um, you you would see the NFL kind of excuse this or allow this at a position that was considered more manly in the NFL conception of, of such things. But for this to be like, um, you know, part of a kicker's CV, Stefan, just seems a little bit weird. Yeah, or maybe the Patriots just thought he's only a kicker. No one else in the locker room is going to give a shit about him anyway or pay him any mind. So whatever he wants to paint on his body, whatevs. Well, my sources tell me that uh, Belichick's dog actually made this pick. <laughs> and I think we have asked some questions about his beliefs. David Roth, thank you for joining us. Uh, if you're interested, Dave is uh, recapping the last dance for Vulture. Where else can we read your work these days? The New Republic? Wherever, yeah. Um, working on something for The New Republic. I'm trying to get up in as many places as I can. And if you wanted to go back and reread all the weird blogs that we did uh, during the, the week of 420 at um, unnamedtemporarysportsblog.com, you can visit it at unnamedtemporarysportsblog.com. <laughs> David Roth, thank you. Thank you, guys. 
That is our show for today. Our producer is Melissa Kaplan. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. For Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zalmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.